Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Live from Liverpool, the dark paranormal. Season 10. Hello everyone. It gives me great pleasure to welcome you back to The Dark Paranormal for Season 10. Firstly, a big thank you to everyone who reached out following the end of Season 9 and also a huge thank you to everyone who contributed towards the upcoming season which I genuinely believe is our best yet. I will also add, and this isn't just for effect, this is in case you hear any sort of noises in the background, I'm recording today's debut episode at night during one of the coldest and windiest nights we've had this far. If nothing else, it should at least add to the atmosphere. We are going to start off Season 10 in truly terrifying style, with a true paranormal experience that I can hand and heart say I've never heard the like of before. I've been doing this for a number of years now, and there are a few stories which, as I'm halfway through proofreading, lead me to look over my shoulder. But I certainly did in this case. But before we settle in for today's debut episode of Season 10, I just need to make a quick few announcements. Firstly, we now have a website... Many of you have got in touch asking about merchandise and things such as that, and in all honesty, I'm no expert. However, we do now have a fully functioning website where if you wish, you can purchase merchandise. You can also contact the show. There are links to our social media channels and our YouTube. And all you need to do is head over to thedarkparanormal.com. And that's the website address. Finally, I'd like to say a huge thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. And I will say bear with us over the next few weeks whilst we catch up with people who've signed up over the downtime between seasons. As will happen when we miss a few episodes in between seasons, we get a backlog of names to read out. And once again, that's took place. But don't worry, your name will indeed be read out. So if you don't hear it today, fret not. When you sign up to Patreon, not only do you receive these episodes both ad-free and before everyone else, but you can also receive exclusive access to our Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites. On Dark Bites, we take a look at some of the shorter stories, which for one reason or another did not make the main show. But that doesn't make them any less terrifying. We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over at Patreon, and we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. 
just like the following new team members have. Janet McGoran, Catherine Green, Sydney Dobbs, Chris W, Chris, Kashif Samo, Corbin Wong, Rich S, Catherine Marker, Zach, Amber Yadkarji, Laquita Mitchell, Ava Nolan, Bree Nevermore, Kiana Taylor, Elias Sorheim, Pink Rose, Amber Jones, Kerry Britt, Lee Eggert, Derek Hope, Chloe Hayden, Ryan Herman, Sarah Hawthorne, Kyra Hergert, Lexi Samaripa, Cecilia Loganbill, Maureen R. Neely, Kitty Brown, Casey Sims, Kerry Wigginton, Lucy Barraclough, Nicole Eddie Durant, Smith P007, Capo Fukumoto, Eleanor Brinklow, Angela Garcia, Stephanie, Noel Vargati, Angelica Gutierrez, Ellie Blakely, Daniel Mayer, Holly Roberts, Anna Rowley, Gravy, Alexander Schwein, Paolo Scaravelli, Nicole Fawcett, Ray Kenderline, Cameron Griffin, Michael Trevino, Gillian Sheets, Kirsty Bishop and Blake Pollard. Thank you so much for supporting the show, guys. It truly means the world to me. I hope you enjoy all the early ad-free releases and, of course, all the additional Dark Bites Patreon-only episodes. So if you'd like to become one of our team members, head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. But right now, it's time. And I've waited so long to say these words. Please, lower the lights. Make yourself comfortable. And most importantly, leave your disbelief at the door. As we hear all about the dolls of the devil. Firstly, I'd just like to explain I've changed some of the locations and people's names within my true paranormal experience, both for privacy and for safety reasons, as you'll soon understand. It's fair to say that up to her early thirties, the only ladylike thing about my sister was her name, Charlotte Ann. Nine years my senior, My sister and I were raised just outside of Shreveport in Louisiana, a city my parents moved to for my dad's job. He worked in the petroleum industry, and the move was apparently the only option for promotion. My earliest memory of Charlotte, or Charlie, as we called her, was of her taking me in her battered Volkswagen camper van to the Red River where she worked in a roadside diner type of place. I was around 10 at the time, so to me, my 19-year-old sister was an adult figure. So when she told me to sit and wait on a waterside bench, I did so without question. And for five hours I sat there, watching as my sister and her renegade friends drank Jack Daniels and smoked illegal substances. To top it off, The temperatures on that day were approaching 90 degrees and I returned home that night probably with third degree burns and definitely with sunstroke. This was the type of teenager my sister was. A rough-edged, heavy-drinking downbeat, the centre of her own universe. I can't remember shedding many tears when she finally upped sticks to move to Missouri where she found some work around the Ozarks. For years, I had no contact with Charlie-Anne, until a few months before my 17th birthday, when she rolled back into town. She'd apparently called my parents to ask if she could live back at home for a few months. My dad said that during that call, there was a desperation in her voice, and when she arrived we instantly realised why she was so eager to return. In the back of the camper van, 
lay a bawling 11-month-old baby, her daughter, Caroline. To say that my sister had changed would be a gigantic understatement. Gone was the long Janis Joplin-style hair, and in its place was a neat bob. She'd lost tons of weight, and now even sported long sleeve shirts to hide her tattoos. The baby Caroline was now the centre of her world. And against all expectations, Charlie was an utterly dedicated mother. In any person, such changes would of course be impressive, but these were nothing compared to her new devotion in life. You see, my sister had found Jesus and had decided to spend her life preaching the Lord's word. She'd gained a place at a Baptist training college in Baton Rouge and was going to become a church minister. Her newfound sense of direction had no place for looking back and Charlie never spoke about the past or the baby's father or about what had sparked this wild flame of evangelical belief. My mother was worried that she may have been brainwashed by some hippie cult. My father was concerned about what the neighbours would think. For my part, I was just delighted to look after baby Caroline while my sister completed her training. I remember that next year as being the happiest of my life. Charlie-Anne came home from the seminary each Friday night and returned on the following Tuesday. So for four days every week, I got to look after my beautiful niece. In the summer of 2015, my sister was finally ordained as an Anglican minister. Charlie dropped all the vestiges of her former life and adopted a new name, Reverend Charlotte. Before we knew it, she'd even secured her first post as the chaplain of a women's correctional institute west of Vicksburg. I'll never forget my mother's face when Charlotte revealed the news. I thought she was going to collapse with shock. But Charlotte, my mum gasped, there's perverts, robbers, murderers in there. She slumped into the chair with a dramatic thud. My sister rested a comforting hand on my mum's shoulder. Hell, Mum, there's a lot worse than that, she said with a laugh. I'm lucky to be working there. I could have easily ended up on death row myself. For the next year, Charlotte utterly threw herself into her role. She loved working in prison and took huge pride in the fact that she had the power to transform lives. Somehow, her former wayward lifestyle had enabled her to communicate with even the most disaffected of inmates. At the beginning of 2018, Charlotte was approached to see whether she would consider extending her ministry to a men's correction unit north of Lafayette. She was told that the prison housed the most dangerous prisoners in Louisiana, with almost 80 men on death row. Typical of my sister... She didn't hesitate to take up the challenge. The greater the sin, the greater the redemption, she told anyone who would try and dissuade her. She started work in the men's prison early that autumn, and to say that Charlotte adored her work would be an understatement. 
Within months, she'd not only established a dedicated worship room, but had started both a soccer team and a gospel choir. It was after about six weeks working there that my sister first met someone I'll call Dylan. A prisoner who had spent over 26 years behind bars. Dylan was apparently famous in the prison and had garnered the nickname The Devil. Standing at almost seven feet tall, he presented an intimidating figure who rarely spoke but stared menacingly at other prisoners who would pass him. Less than a year earlier, apparently, Dylan had almost strangled another prisoner to death. His sinister reputation was increased by an array of little miniature dolls which he sculpted from discarded material. The dolls were all posed in different positions around his room. The guards warned Charlotte never to engage Dylan in conversation about the dolls, because this strange but seemingly innocent pastime hid, allegedly, a more sinister origin. A few years earlier, it was alleged that Dylan had confided to another prisoner that the dolls were images of the children that he'd murdered. Each day, Dylan would swap the position of the dolls, often changing their clothes or hiding one in his bed. As Charlotte walked past his cell, she would often see him leaning over, whispering to one of the dolls as if in conversation. Unconcerned about who may be watching him, Dylan would spend hours playing with these figures, speaking in his own deep whispered voice and then answering in a high-pitched drawl to mimic the child's terrified voice. It was chilling behaviour, and when Charlotte needed to pass his cell, she walked quickly, without making any eye contact with Dylan. It was just before Thanksgiving that the first of a series of strange events occurred, surrounding Dylan. At this point, it's important to say that, quite obviously... Charlotte shared nothing of her personal life with the prisoners. She was even cautious with the guards or her fellow welfare workers. Her wild child youth had created chaos for everyone around her. But, at the same time, it had endowed my sister with a sort of streetwise sixth sense to avoid trouble. She knew that in prison, any sliver of personal information could be used against you, so she was ultra-cautious to never reveal any details about her history, her family, her domestic life, and of course, especially, of baby Caroline. So initially, she put the first couple of incidents with Dylan down to an unnerving coincidence. Each Tuesday, Charlotte led a church service in the prison East Wing, and as she quickly walked past his cell, she saw Dylan sitting on his bed facing inwards towards the wall. She was relieved that he'd not seen her. Just as she opened the chapel door, she suddenly heard him whistling a tune from his cell. Instantly, she froze, holding the half-open door. As if he knew that he'd grabbed her attention... Dylan began whistling the tune louder, 
and it was now unmistakable what the melody was. It was Neil Diamond's Sweet Caroline. It took Charlotte several minutes to regain her composure and enter the chapel. When she told me about the incident later that night, I just laughed it off. Hell, Charlie, I said. It's one of the most famous songs in the world. How the hell would he know about baby Caroline? He probably doesn't even know his own mother's name. The next incident was altogether more disturbing. It started with my mother ironing my father's shirts. After neatly pressing each shirt, she covered it in a thin plastic covering and then hung it above the door, above the baby's cot. For some reason, my mother's attention was momentarily diverted and as she returned to her ironing, she was suddenly conscious that Caroline was silent and that something was terribly wrong. Instinctively, she bolted to the open door beside which the baby slept. The second she realised what's happened, she screamed at the top of her voice, Christ, no! Oh, help! Oh, please, God, no! There, in front of her, the tiny baby was completely covered by a plastic sheet which had fallen off a shirt. The baby was completely still. Desperately, my mother ripped the plastic off the crib. For seconds, that felt like hours. The baby lay motionless in a suffocated silence. It looked as if Caroline had stopped breathing and was completely still. My mother slumped to her knees, and just at that second, my father bolted into the kitchen. He lifted the limp baby from the cot and blew hard onto her face. For a few seconds, there was nothing, and then... Finally, by the grace of God, Caroline started crying, bellowing at the top of her lungs. For weeks afterwards, my mother was visibly shook by the freak accident and blamed herself for almost killing her granddaughter. I was surprised how calm Charlotte was about the accident. But in her own world, God would never allow such a horrid thing to happen. The following week, as Charlotte returned from her morning sermon, she passed Dylan's empty cell, as the prisoner was taking his exercise hour. She paused, debated and then, unable to resist the opportunity, she walked closer to the door and spied in to the dark interior. The bed was neatly made with a pair of clean white slippers placed on the floor. On the pillow, a children's comic was open on a picture of a little girl walking into a forest. And then she saw it. On Dylan's small bedside table, a circle of seven dolls had been carefully placed, each with their heads bowed, as if looking at something laying on the floor. The faces of each of the dolls had been scratched to show an open mouth, as if gaping in fear or shock. It was clear that the figurines were staring in horror at something laying still. From the angle where she stood, Charlotte could not see the object in the centre of the circle. 
Cautiously, she checked around her and then took a few paces into the cell to get a better look. Now she could clearly see over the top of the small figures. But as Charlotte realized what the dolls were staring at, she instinctively stepped backwards in terror. For a few brief seconds, she held onto the wall of the cell to stop herself from fainting. Because there, laying in the center of the circle, was a tiny figure of a baby with its head covered by a small plastic wrapper. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Charlotte was so shook up by the doll incident that for several weeks she was much quieter than usual. And generally, she was not her normal, confident self. Hey, Charlie, I said to her more than once. The man's a psycho, not a psychic. He plays with dolls, for God's sake. Just keep away from him. But still, I knew that she'd been deeply affected. And the reality was that in the tight confines of a prison, it's almost impossible to avoid someone. Nevertheless, Charlotte did somehow manage to avoid passing Dylan's cell until the weeks leading up to Christmas. It was in mid-December that a series of carol concerts were organised by a group of trustee prisoners. They took place in the side chapel, which meant, since Charlie was narrating the concert, that she had to pass Dylan's cell. She deliberately waited until the block of prisoners were on mid-afternoon exercise before walking past the empty cells to the chapel. For all my persuasion not to go anywhere near his cell, Charlie told me that somehow she couldn't help herself. And as she walked past Dylan's cell, she suddenly found herself pausing and cautiously staring through the door. The cell was dark and strangely tidy. In the past few weeks, Dylan had clearly altered the position of his furnishings and the small table was now in the corner of the room. In the shadows, Charlotte could make out the shape of one single doll on that table. It was dressed all in black, with a hood shrouding its face. On the wall beside it, cardboard had been cut into a window shape and stuck onto the wall. It was through this window that the figure stared. For several weeks, nothing occurred until late January, when Charlie was helping out at a mother's refuge in Shreveport. Three times a week she set off at sunset on the three-mile journey to an old army barracks which was hidden away down a dirt track just off the Louisiana Highway. The old wooden hut was placed out of sight in a woodland clearing with a tall pole light illuminating the dirt car park and a security camera scanning the entrance stairs. Being completely surrounded by thick swampland, the refuge was perfectly hidden and served only by one ramshackle road which terminated at the wooden hut. 
By the time Charlie left the building, it was nearly nine o'clock. As she walked towards her car, the music from the refuge abruptly stopped as the door recoiled shut. The security light flickered on, illuminating the almost empty car park. Everywhere was silent, except for the sound of the insects in the surrounding swamp grass. Carefully, Charlie made her way towards her car, which was parked beside some swamp fonts on the edge of the dirt park. The light offered enough illumination for her to open her car door, and as soon as she did, she slumped into the driver's seat. She instinctively locked her doors, and now she began the ritual of locating the ignition slot with her keys. She traced her fingers down the steering column, unsuccessfully attempting to locate the key slot. As she did so, the security light suddenly timed out, and the car park was plunged into an impenetrable darkness. It was at this moment that Charlie first heard a faint sound. A dull tapping on the back right-hand side window. At first, she didn't want to turn around. Logic told her that the swamp grass beside the car was just brushing on the back window, and it was as simple as that. For several more moments, the rhythmical tapping continued, and just at the moment when she imagined it was getting louder, the sound abruptly stopped. In the silence, she was suddenly aware of her own breathing as she fumbled for the ignition. She started to gain in composure and she prodded the key higher on the dark steering column. Come on, for God's sake, where are you? She shouted out loud at the exact second the key effortlessly slipped into the ignition. With a sigh of relief, she slumped back into the car seat. Thank you, God she said out loud as she reached for her safety belt. But, as she turned around, something caught her eye, and her whole body froze. There, standing only a few inches away from her door, a hooded figure silently stared at her through the car window. Charlie didn't know what to do, and then in an instinctive act of self-defense, she slapped at the window with full force. She waited for the figure to dart back, but it didn't. It stood there still staring through the car window, and then slowly, almost theatrically, bowed its head to the window to stare into the car. As it did so, the car park security light suddenly activated to illuminate the dark figure. Charlie could see now what appeared to be a young teenage boy, dressed all in black with an almost completely white face, leering into the car. In utter terror, she recoiled her body away from the door, instinctively lifting her legs in order to kick out at the intruder should he somehow enter the car. For a few moments of tense panic, Charlie looked into the hooded face of the intruder, his forehead was now casually resting on the window. Charlie felt as though she would faint as she saw the distorted face that was looking at her. The boy's face seemed to be covered in white powder or white face paint. His mouth seemed impossibly small and oddly misshapen. 
But as the light caught his face, Charlie realised that the boy's thin eyelids were actually shut tight and that painted on the skin were two crudely painted on eyes staring blankly at her. It was as if the soulless eyes were painted on the eyelids of a corpse. In that second, instinct now took over from her fear and almost screaming in anger, she jumped back into the seat and desperately sparked the ignition. In a panicked disregard for anyone near to the car, she hurtled that car out of the car park and headed home. For days, Charlie's trauma was such that she refused to leave the house. She was convinced that somehow, this terrifying incident must be related to Dylan. Do you not see, she would insist. The doll I told you about, the one looking through the window, it was looking at me. It was me on the other side of that window. He knew this was going to happen. By nature, I'm a skeptic, and even now, as I relate these words, I remain confused about certain aspects of my sister's trauma that night. Firstly, when the police examined the security footage of the incident, no movement nor figure was detected lingering around Charlie's car. The police acknowledged that the CCTV was poor quality, but all that could be seen was an indistinct grainy shadow which seemed to only momentarily hover by the driver's door. It could have been marsh gas, a trick of the light. The point is, there was no clear image of any hooded figure. Secondly, the refuge was so isolated that any intruder must have took a vehicle down the track. Yet the police found no evidence of this. Secretly, I began to question whether all of those unexplained events were just figments of my sister's overactive imagination, or perhaps a series of bizarre coincidences that Charlie had somehow moulded into this supernatural experience. I still don't know the answer to those questions, but there is one final coincidence that is certainly less easy to explain. You see, in the summer of 2019, my sister was asked to be an official observer at a series of prison parole board meetings. The purpose of these was to decide the future of around 20 prisoners whose sentences were due for review. Basically, the observer's role was to attend the parole meetings and ensure that the panel acted with integrity and professionalism. As part of this process, the panel often reviewed graphic police photographs from crime scenes. In accordance with the prison's guidelines, no prior notification was given to the panel of those prisoners eligible for parole. On the first day of the meetings, Charlie unexpectedly found herself sitting opposite the devil, Dylan. It was his final parole opportunity, and as he was led in chains to the chair opposite the panel, my sister was almost sick with terror. Even the more experienced members of the panel seemed on edge opposite this notorious murderer. The prison's vice-governor began the meeting by relating the history of Dylan's offences. He told the panel about the desperate home background 
which created this troubled teenager, who would go on to murder and mutilate at least six children. For workers in the penal system, these repulsive and sickening acts are commonplace. Yet, as the parole secretary handed round photographs showing the victims of Dylan's final murder scene, Charlie could sense the revulsion in the faces of the panel. She was the final member to receive a copy of the photographs. As she stared at the glossy black and white images, she struggled to make sense of what was in front of her. With her stomach wrenching in sudden disgust, she realised what she was now looking at. In the centre of the photograph was the distorted and mutilated face of a young boy. Dressed all in black, the victim lay on his back. The boy's hands had been cable-tied in a praying position, giving the impression of some religious effigy. But as Charlie looked closer at the boy's face, she involuntarily gave out a small, desperate whimper. Because staring straight at her, wide black eyes had been carefully painted onto the child's dead eyelids. It should come as no surprise to anyone that Dylan remains behind bars to this day. My sister continues her ministry, albeit in a new facility, after she has to move following that parole meeting. As I say, there are many things about Charlie, especially from her past, which makes even myself question her interpretation of these experiences. But that said, one thing I will say is if you could see my sister on the rare occasion she recalls these events, anyone, and I do mean anyone, would walk away convinced she's telling nothing but the goddamn truth. Wow, what a way to start off season 10 with literally one hell of a story. Thank you so much to Peter for providing that true paranormal experience, as well as a few good images that will stick in my head for a good long while. Well, that concludes our debut episode of season 10, of the Dark Paranormal. As ever, thank you for choosing to spend your time with me here on this show. I will often be asked about submissions for the show, and although Season 10 is completely sketched out now, as you know from previous seasons, there's always some wiggle room should the right story come in. So you can send that story, if you have one, to thedarkparanormal at hotmail.com, or you can go to our new website, thedarkparanormal.com and just hit the contact link next week we have an experience for you that you sincerely won't want to miss so make sure you hit the subscribe button and share the show with your friends if you haven't already for our patreons i'll speak to you again on sunday for another episode of dark bites and for everyone i'll speak to you next week for episode two of season 10 until then remember When you're discussing the paranormal, always try and leave some of your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next time, here, on The Dark Paranormal.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.